Previously on At The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Chaney, and Lou Katz. It's going to be available on demand, so pick your platform if you want to watch it on Amazon, if you want to watch it on Google Play, on your cable, whatever you got, you should be able to find it. So this is one of those $19 things I don't like. <laughs> At The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Chaney, and Lou Katz begins now. <laughs> Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast that keeps you informed on the ever-changing world of entertainment. What is it? <laughs> no kidding. I'm Lou Katz. Please welcome entertainment reporter, critic from Vulture and WTOP Radio, one of our favorite human beings on the planet, Jen Chaney. Hello. And by the way, it's time to bring in the long-tooth radio TV critic, Arch Campbell, direct from his outhouse at an undisclosed location. <laughs> Down in the mountains of North Carolina. <laughs> and I've been here for four weeks, and we have not turned the air conditioner on once. Do you hate me? A little. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an improvement. <laughs> So it's always great to be together with Lou and Jen. And Jen, you are our uh, source of new entertainment. And what is new this week? Well, there is a new film out written and directed by Jon Stewart called Irresistible. And it's a political satire. It stars Steve Carell as a Democratic consultant who, as we learn in the opening moments, worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign. And his nemesis is, is played by Rose Byrne, who, of course, worked on the Trump campaign. Mm. And in the aftermath of, of that election, Steve Carell's character happens upon this guy who lives in a small Wisconsin town, played by Chris Cooper. He feels like he should be running for mayor as a Democrat against the incumbent Republican. So Steve Carell goes to this small town and starts helping this, this guy. And inevitably, Rose Byrne goes there as well to help the incumbent. And so it's this, these two warring factions and, and also commentary sort of on how, you know, when we talk about national politics, we lose sight of sort of what, it, what, what the middle of the country is really like, what it's really like to, to live in some of these towns. That was a long explanation for a movie that is not very good. It is getting oh, just real. flambéed. Every every critic that I follow on Twitter has has remarked upon how how bad it is, and wow. you know it's it's so strange because I think John Stewart is an incredibly astute um, right. person and political observer, and none of that translates to the screen um, huh. at all. Uh, just a lot of the jokes fall flat. I mean, ultimately, the message of the movie isn't something that we haven't heard before, and it's not really conveyed in a way that feels fresh. You know, Carell and, and Byrne sort of feel like characters that got excised from a bad Veep script because <laughs> the characters weren't well formed. Carell, by the way, is zero for two, isn't he? Well, if you ask me, he is. If you yeah. ask people who've been yelling at me on social media, they would say he's one for two, at least for Space Force. But um, yeah, he... I he, um, hear anything good about Space Force. Yeah, he has not had good luck lately. And, and in this case and in Space Force, it's not any real fault of his performance. It's that the writing is is just bad. The, the ideas are, are not fully conceived. You know, I wonder if just people are, you know, politics has gotten so intense, no matter which side you're on. And then, of course, uh, since uh, May, the uh, the demonstrations 
are so intense that I wonder if uh, number one satire of politics is just just hits the wrong note. And the other thing is, I just wonder if people are exhausted. Well, it also could be that John Stewart wrote a bad script, but but well, the, yeah, <laughs> or maybe it's just not funny. <laughs> but to your point, um, I do think it's very tricky to do satire well in the Trump era because you know Trump, everybody's already made fun of him for whatever he's done, you know, two minutes after it's happened. I mean, the only person doing really great satire right now is Sarah Cooper. Um, uh -huh. I don't know if you've watched her on on um, uh, Twitter or, or seen her videos. They've, they've been showing them on TV. Do you know who I'm talking about? I think her I've videos... read about her. Yeah, yeah. She posts her videos on TikTok, but they get kind of mm -hmm. also on Twitter. And she just takes segments of things that Trump has said and just lip syncs them. But she's very creative in the ways that she kind of brings them to life. And it's just, it's hard to describe without showing you, but it's very, very funny. And it's very simple. Um, she's, now, just, what... she's just exposing him for the moron that he is um, <laughs> without trying to make it, you know, any more complicated than that. What is the name of the John Stewart movie and where is it so that I can and avoid it <laughs> <laughs> it's called irresistible it's available uh, on demand like all films are at this point yeah. for that price you love of 20 bucks so um, oh, you can just hold on to your money i guess yeah yeah uh you've also there's uh, something new on hbo coming search party okay so <laughs> that is on hbo max um mm -hmm. which is the That's streaming platform the warner media streaming platform i don't know if you ever watched the first two seasons of search party they were on tbs originally and the first season of it was all the way back in 2016 so it, it, it's been a, a while and it started out as a show about a woman who finds out that a college acquaintance of hers has gone missing and she becomes obsessed with trying to track her down uh, but it was also oh, like yeah. with yeah. alia shawcat from arrested development played the main character there's also a, a satire of like brooklyn millennial culture but it got more and more crime focused and now in season three alia shawkat's character and the guy who used to be her boyfriend are on trial for committing murder and that really gives the the season a, a structure but it's still kind of it's dark satire and at first i felt like gosh this just feels like it's like it's been so long since I've watched this, it feels like kind of out of step with right now. But the more I watched it, I felt like the funnier it got. And also it really is a, a commentary on dishonesty. And it's um, a commentary on how the justice system, if you're a white privileged person, like what are the odds for you <laughs> in the justice system and how, how easily can you manipulate it? So I actually ended up liking it. I wasn't sure that I would, but I did. Did you see any of Perry Mason? Have you watched any yes, of Yes, yes. I did. I'm not hearing good things. I did not see it, and I'm hearing mixed uh, response. And you know, I, this is something that I thought was going to be right in my wheelhouse. I actually liked it. Um, I've watched the whole thing. I wrote a review of it. It's it's extremely well done in terms of evoking the period. I love Matthew Reese, so I'm just happy to see Matthew Reese on my television again. But he's he's very good. All the performances in it are excellent. But it's not if you're turning it on thinking this is going to be like in any way like Perry Mason with uh, Raymond Burr. It's it's not at all. It's 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 an L.A. noir kind of pulpy. Sounds like Chinatown to me. Yeah, or like an L.A. Confidential sort of thing. But then I mean, it eventually becomes courtroom but it takes several episodes before it gets to that point now i did watch a movie on uh, netflix i watched uh, spike lee's new film the five bloods mm -hmm. and uh you know spike lee this is certainly a moment for him and uh this is uh one of these um 
it's kind of it's kind of a cross between Black Lives Matter and the Bucketists. <laughs> it's five friends who were in Vietnam who go back looking for the uh, remains of their leader and looking for some gold they uh, had stashed behind. So it's a little bit of an adventure story. Uh, like a lot of Spike Lee movies, it meanders a lot. He His reference points are exciting and thrilling, uh, but it gets kind of long in the middle. And then uh, it comes back together at the end. And so I would say it was a very satisfying experience, except that I'm I'm struggling with watching uh, new movies on on streaming, on cable. I, I miss that theatrical experience. I think the, the Five Bloods would be better in a theater than uh, watching it on my TV. It's, it's uh, two hours and a half long. And that seemed uh, kind of long to me. So, but I, but I'm positive on the film. I'm just, I'm still struggling with the times in which we live. Yeah. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch that. I've heard great things about it. So uh, it's definitely on my list. Uh, you you have uh, seen something I have read about uh, involving uh, the late wife of Patton Oswalt. Uh, yes. So Michelle McNamara, who died, I think it was like two or three years ago, maybe, um, very suddenly um, of a, a medical condition that was not known to her. And she was a very well-regarded crime writer. And she did a, a, a blog about just all kinds of, you know, uns- solved or mysteries and things like that. And she got really involved in investigating uh, the killer that she she did, the Golden State Killer, um, a serial rapist and murderer. And she wrote a book about it called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And she, or she, I should say, she was in the process of writing that book when she died. Um, right. And Patton Oswalt's uh, made sure it was published posthumously. And now they have made a docu-series about it directed by Liz Garbus for HBO. I'm still in the middle of watching it, but um, I find it so interesting because I, I, I mean, I've, I watch a lot of true crime. I, I know you may be yeah. Watch at least a little bit of it yourself. And there's a certain point where, you know, the, the format of these kinds of shows is so familiar that it almost makes you feel detached from the severity of the crime. And because this is so personal, and also just even when they read some of Michelle McNamara's words, she was such a great writer. Mm. Um, I was watching an episode, uh, perhaps not wisely, right before going to bed the other night. And it was really, I mean, genuinely like creeping me out, like really, really creepy. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So I, I think it's really, really well done. And that is, in fact, airing, it'll be airing on Sundays right after Perry Mason on HBO. Oh, well, great. Well, you know, uh, I always think uh, the, the one I judge by is The Keepers, the, uh, mm-hmm. the story of the uh, death of the nun in Baltimore, whose colleagues a generation later uh, reviewed and, and went back into the case so if it's if it's on the order of that i'm i'm there i want to mention to you especially mm-hmm. something i've stumbled onto called a french village have you ever heard of it i'm not sure it sounds it's, kind of familiar but i definitely haven't seen it it ended in 2017 and it started i think in 2009 it is in french and it's 
the story of a, of a village uh, during World War II. So it goes, it starts in year 1940 when the Nazis invade. And then we go through 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46. So it's seven seasons, 72 episodes. Wow. It has, it's uh, driven me to the history books and to the internet to restudy uh, France in World War II and uh, the Nazi uh, invasion and Vichy France, which was uh, sort of a, uh, of an armistice with the uh, Nazis. They, they collaborated with the Nazis and uh, they're always going across borders and uh, it's a complete soap opera, uh, but I'm completely obsessed with it. A young teacher falls in love with a German soldier and, and becomes pregnant with his child and the, the town doctor is appointed mayor and has to deal with the Nazis and a businessman is uh, taking over a business that the Nazis have taken away from the Jews and uh, from a Jewish uh, industrialist. And uh, and it's just, it's, it's full of stuff and it's very French. <laughs> it is very intense. And I'm just, and I, you know, I, I would love to, to see what you ever think. Do you speak French? I do not. I speak Spanish, not fluently, but I speak Spanish, French. I know we, oui, I know merci, you know. <laughs> you have to concentrate because you have to read the uh, subtitles. And so I find that every night after I watch a couple of episodes, I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and, and I don't know what I'm going to be able to contribute for a while until I get through 72 episodes of this. I think I'm up to 16. Okay, well, that should only take you five years. <laughs> Now, uh, since we last uh, spoke, uh, the Oscars have moved from February to April and all the other award shows are moving. What are your thoughts? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 everything is so in flux that it's, it's even hard to make a judgment about this, right? Because, you know, given the numbers that we're seeing on, uh, of COVID cases in several states, including California, which has gotten bad again, even... <laughs> In the dates that have been laid out for Mulan and Tenet, I fully expect those to be pushed yeah. again, and perhaps even some of the movies that we are expecting to see in the fall to be pushed. So if, if it gets to the point where there really are so few films and there's no theatrical releases, I can understand it. But on the flip side, it does feel like a little bit of snobbery, right? I mean, some movies did come out. There, there were mm -hmm. some, there mm -hmm. have been some good films and they haven't necessarily been released theatrically, but they're still worthy of consideration. So it just feels like they're kind of waiting and until the Oscar movies come out, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, I'm mixed on the whole thing. I just, you know, I'm, I've always had a thing about the Oscars anyway, because originally they, they were on a Monday night and they were around Easter time. And it right. was sort of a downtime for movies. And Monday night was considered the, uh, the night fewest people went to a movie theater. And over the years, they became less and less and less about movies movies and more about putting on a TV show. And once they moved into Sunday night, you know, I, I and their response to streaming, uh, it's, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm just sort of, <laughs> I, Lou, you got any thoughts? Save me on this, will you? It doesn't make any difference when the Oscars are, guys. I've got my popcorn machine st in standby mode anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can act like the Oscars are here or, or they're not. 
I agree with Jen. I think everything is up in the air. Yeah. I mean, I don't object to watching them later than usual. Like you said, we used to watch them in March and, and even yeah, yeah. even April, maybe. April, yeah. 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 It's more about like extending the qualification period and what, what does that mean and, and why is that necessary? You know, maybe give an Oscar to Emma or give an Oscar to mm-hmm. um, some um, of these earlier films or some of these films that we've been watching at home. Give, give Hey, give Spike Lee his best picture Oscar. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's not like there are no movies. And I do want to go back to what I said to you earlier and that is I think a movie has to be really special to come across on streaming uh, and, and I think a lot of movies suffer without the theatrical experience and having said that I'm not about to go inside of a movie theater until uh, this thing uh, is settled. Yeah I mean you and I disagree a little bit on that I mean I love the theatrical experience too but with the exception of certain really epic films I, I have no problem watching watching a movie at home like none at well, all well i mean i loved the irishman and uh watched it at home again and it was terrific uh and i loved uh, roma and i saw it in a theater and then watched it again at home and thought it was terrific um the the spike lee movie experience that i just had you know his stuff often sags in the middle by the way they're showing um do the right thing for free i think this weekend it's on a bunch of platforms. Oh, that's nice. Somebody has never seen it or hasn't seen it in a while. Uh, it's there. So, so there we are. John Stewart's movie stinks. <laughs> Search Party is pretty good on HBO Max. I'll Be Gone in the Dark follows uh, Perry Mason on HBO. That's pretty exciting. Uh, Spike Lee's movie is on Netflix, The Five Bloods, and um, it's pretty good. And <laughs> if you really don't have enough to do, watch A French Village. <laughs> and where do people find that? Is that on Amazon? It started on Amazon, and now it's on Hulu. Okay. First season, I found the first season on Amazon, and then uh, you had to join something like MHZ or something I'd never heard of. So I found it on Hulu, and I upgraded to the Hulu so I don't have the commercials. And so now I'm watching the rest of it on Hulu. But it's, uh, it's, uh, I've heard about it from a few of my friends mm-hmm. uh, who are older like me with little or nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> So, Lewis, how about a shameless plug for uh, Hound Radio? Oh, I like that. Hey, now, Jen, how old, how old is your dog? Well, I have two, and it's always a little bit of a guess because they were adopted. Um, I think one of them is like six, and the other one's probably like four or five, but that might not be right. <laughs> Now, Jen, you got you got dogs at home. Do they ever yawn? Do the dogs ever like, yeah, they yawn? You ever see them yawn? All the time, yeah. There's a reason why, and we're going to tell you right now with our World of Dogs report from Faith Lapidus. Check this out. It's all part of Hound Radio. Hound Radio welcomes you to the weird and wacky world of dogs. A weekly look at what our canine friends are up to. Yawning, in people at least, is a sign of boredom, exhaustion, or the need to stretch out those face muscles. Yawning serves mostly the same purposes in dogs, although their mouths open a lot wider than ours do. But a canine yawn can signal much more. Dogs may yawn when they're anxious, uncomfortable, or under stress. It can act as a coping mechanism for your dog to calm himself down. And a yawn is also a calming signal to other dogs, a way to communicate a pacifying message. I'm not a threat to another dog that's showing aggression. 
Yawning is just one of a number of calming signals in the canine vocabulary. You can see a lot of them being used during play at the dog park. Dogs will break off their chase, do what's called a shake-off, yawn, look away from each other, maybe do a play bow to help ensure that things don't get too rough. And then they'll get back to the game. I'm Faith Lapidus for Hound Radio. The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Cheney, and Lou Katz comes to you from the secret underground bunker studios of the Katz Podcasting System. We need to mention uh, the passing of Ian Holm, the great uh, actor who died at the age of 88 and, of course, is best known uh, for uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. What are your thoughts on Ian Holmes? You know, I was sad to see that. I mean, I think everybody thinks of Lord of the Rings first, but um, he was in uh, Alien, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. And and also, um, he was sort of the star of uh, The Sweet Hereafter, which is a really lovely, but very sad movie. But how old was he again, Arch? 88. Ian Holm, 88 years old, British actor. When I first heard the news of Ian Holm, I immediately thought of Big Night. Did you ever oh. see Big Night? Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, and he was the the uh, the restaurant owner competitor who kind of put everything into uh, motion there. And uh, and there's another movie that uh, really struck me called uh, Joe Gould's Secret. Did you ever mm. see Joe Gould's Secret? No. It was a uh, based on a story by a New Yorker writer about uh, a homeless guy who was writing the history of the world. And this writer, Joseph Mitchell, was a, a real um, New Yorker writer, made uh, uh, friends with him, and he, and he shows him this manuscript, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages. And, uh, and it's uh, just another lovely little movie. The, the, the list of his films is amazing. So uh, I think we should salute Ian Holm. And I thought of you when Joel Schumacher died because he was the director of St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah, I mean, people people remember him, uh, I think, primarily for the Batman movies that he worked on. But I love St. Elmo's Fire. And even more, I loved The Lost Boys so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think he really, he understood, and he was often criticized for it, especially like in the 80s and early 90s. But people said he was all style, no substance. But mm-hmm. I think he really understood how to make films that appealed to the music video generation. What people thought is not substantive the, the style of it was 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 uh what was really appealing about it so yeah i was i was sad to see that yeah 80 years old and um i should mention that he also had some great success with a couple of john grisham adaptations including a time to kill which uh often shows up uh, as uh you know among the important and really good films of the um 80s and 90s. So now you mentioned, Jen, <laughs> that you're sick and tired of being called on to play what's your favorite movie? Did I say that? Well, no, I'm I making that up. Tired? <laughs> that you would, would like to expand it sometimes to what's going on in the front of your mind <laughs> or what are you ranting about these days? What's- well, 
Well, there's that. And then there's also just um, kind of pop culture confessions, mm -hmm. you know, just putting out, asking you guys different things that you might remember. Um, I don't know if you want me to rant or if you oh, want to. Oh, no, no, please ask away. Wait. So I'm, I'm, I'm opening the, the realm of this so that it's not ah. just limited to movies or even TV yeah, right. um, to ask, what was your favorite or what, uh, pardon, your first concert, very first concert you went to? But the very first concert I went to, I think was a um just a minute i know it's it's in there somewhere the very first concert it might have been a neil diamond concert oh wow because, uh, because i was working at a radio station and we sponsored so i'm gonna go with neil diamond Would you have been? Uh, it was so long ago, Neil Diamond was young. <laughs> I think, but I you, you were working, so you weren't I, a kid. I must have been about 25. That's kind of late for the first concert, I, isn't it? Yes, it was. I, you know, I, I didn't go to a lot of concerts, I went to movies. <laughs> there was no room in the schedule for concerts because <laughs> what was your favorite what was your first concert well it's funny for for many years i thought it was kiss but then i was um i was uh corrected that it was actually elo oh my um because my dad's company had um i don't know if you remember the cap center they had like they weren't there were suites and then there were like loges yeah, yeah, uh like yeah. and and they had they had one for whatever reason and a lot of the time they wouldn't use it for concerts so my dad would just snag all the tickets and you know our whole family would go and i was i was young i was it was like i don't know i was probably seven and it was when they you know elo had the big ufo that would come down to the stage <laughs> it was very exciting well uh, lou katz has got to have a story about concerts Surprisingly, I, I was a late bloomer like you, Arch. I, I think, if I'm correct, the very first show I went to was at the old D.C. Armory wow. to see Cool in the Gang in the early 70s. Wait, so how old were you then? In your 20s? Mm, yeah, well, yeah, I was in or my, uh, yeah, around 20. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, yeah. Did your parents not want you to go to concerts? Is that Was that the problem? Well... <laughs> We, Lou and I led sheltered lives. We did. We did. <laughs> well, actually, uh, because we're a generation ahead of you, there weren't that many concerts. I mean, there was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And uh, other than that, and if they, you know, I was in San Antonio, Texas, and they didn't come there very often. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so it was quite a, um, it took quite an effort to go. And Lou and I are from the school where we waited to be invited for free. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or you got in for free, too. Yeah. How was cool in the gang, Lou? Hey! Oh, my gosh. It was one of those shows I remember because the seating were all like folding chairs. They didn't have, you know, any kind of formal seating there at the time. And I just remember everybody standing up the whole time. The whole time. Just couldn't sit no, down. That's... Everybody was just dancing to all the songs. 
I saw Cool and the Gang a few years back. Weirdly enough, they were opening for Van Halen um, on the tour where David Lee Roth was back as the front man. And I thought, well, that's a weird pairing, but they were great. They were so much fun. I was really glad that they opened. In subsequent years, I went to see them at Meriwether Post Pavilion along, I think they were appearing with Earth, Wind and Fire. And uh, I've always had a soft spot for the R&B acts. And I, and I, I was just, it was a very memorable show. Yeah. Is the armory even a rat? Did they tear it down? Is it gone now? I think so. I think it is. The armory is where the Beatles played in 64. Yeah. The week after uh, Ed Sullivan. You guys missed that one. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your favorite concert movie? Is that, is that a legit question? That's a good question. I'm sure that's a legit question. I'm going to be made fun of for this uh, because it was it was so mocked at the time. I still think it's a, it's a good movie and a great album, um, Rattle and Hum. They're making a movie. We're playing a rock and roll concert, all right? Mm, wow. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Stop Making Sense. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, which, uh, for the title alone. <laughs> We shall return in a couple of weeks. And uh, what are you looking forward to, Jen? What's coming up? Looking forward. I'm not sure how to do that. Um, <laughs> man, I can't. Honestly, I can't even think about it right now. Uh, it's been okay, that. And I know you're working on a big story for Vulture, and we are going to be looking forward to that. And you cannot divulge the subject, except that it is a major uh, thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sh- sure. Sure. <laughs> so, Lewis, you got a way to get us out of this? I, I do, Arch. Uh, something you may or may not have kept track of, uh, this episode of our podcast is the 50th. It's the silver anniversary episode. Oh, wow. my goodness. So That's I, almost as many episodes as The French Village. <laughs> <laughs> See if we make it that long. Anyway, I thought I thought I'd wrap up with a classic pop act, the Little River Band, and Happy Anniversary. Oh man! Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my mind. Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my Somebody new. I see it in your eyes, Lord. It's no surprise what he can do for you. But when I look back, baby, when I look back to what we had, and I know I've got good times, but there were just as many bad, and so I wish you.
trembling at the knees And so won't you please Before I lose my mind This is our fifth year, baby And it feels like I'm in jail, Lord I'm holding on to this card Can't seem to get it in the mail And the card reads Happy anniversary, baby Got you on This is the CATS Podcasting System.